views expressed are not endorsed by the United States Department of Defense or its components. Welcome back to the Flyover Podcast as part of USAFA Aviation. Today is episode 15, and we are privileged to have Lieutenant Colonel Kristen K.J. Heiserman with us today. She's a native of Monument, Colorado. Colonel Heisman received her commission from Colorado State University in 2008 and earned her wings from undergraduate pilot training in 2010. She's a senior AFSOC pilot with more than 2,300 flying hours in the T6A, <laughs> T1, MQ1B, PC-12, and U-28A. Lieutenant Colonel Heiserman has flown combat missions in Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, and Africa in support of operations Iraqi Freedom, Enduring Freedom, Inherent Resolve, and Freedom's Sentinel. Lieutenant Colonel Heiserman is a fellow at the Institute for Future Conflict as well as an instructor in the Department of Management at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado. As a fellow, she assists cadets in researching topics and themes from the National Defense Strategy as well as focusing her her own research and education toward the changing security environment and future capabilities in the Arctic. Before assuming her current position, Lieutenant Colonel Heiserman was the command speechwriter for North American Aerospace Defense Command and United States Northern Command. Man, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jack and John. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so we, uh, I guess we'll kind of start off like your flying career. So you've flown both RPAs and manned aircraft. Um, so what was that transition like and what are some unique aspects of each? Yeah, good question. So uh, two-part answer for the MQ-1, transitioning back, uh, tra- transitioning to an RPA. Um, it wasn't easy and it was easy. So um or transitioning back to the U-28, I should say. So after flying the MQ-1, it's a VFR aircraft, right? So it literally flies in clouds, it'll melt. Um, So five years, I had to kind of forget what I learned in pilot training, flying instruments, um, but I had to relearn it all over again. Um, They sent me to Laughlin Air Force Base for six weeks to relearn the T-1 and um, fly instruments again. So the easy part, that I got to transition from the U, the um, MQ-1 to the U-28 was that I had um, already done the mission set. It's an ISR mission. They're both ISR um, aircraft. I was an aircraft commander in the MQ-1, so I knew how to command a crew. I knew crew, crew resource management. Um, and so that the, the two kind of aligned that way. Um, some unique aspects of the MQ-1, I would say it's too crude. So there's an aircraft commander and a sensor operator who's uh, enlisted. Uh, You're deployed in garrison uh, during the mission control element, or the MCE. Uh, You could be flying in Africa one moment, your plane lands. You take a little break, you walk over to the next ground control station, and you're flying in Iraq, or Afghanistan, or Libya. And it's really important to know the different ROEs for each one of those AORs, uh, because mistakes can cause international incidents. Uh, there's a mental transition that occurs um, from when you're deployed in garrison. So when I was at Cannon Air Force Base, I would, I would do, I'd finish up my 12-hour shift. I'd get in a car, and I'd have 15 minutes to transition mentally from being at war to being at home. Uh, a good example that my friends would, would say, I didn't have kids at the time, but they went from shooting bad dudes to watching their kid play soccer in a matter of 15 minutes. So um, that was a, a pretty unique uh, thing in the MQ-1. Uh, I do want to talk about a, a quick story um, in the MQ-1 of that transition. So in August of 2011, there was a Chinook carrying um, 
roughly between two Chinooks carrying 38 uh, military members. Uh, the call sign was Extortion 17. It was shot down um, by an RPG in the um, Tanky Valley. Uh, it killed 17 SEALs, two Air Force pararescue, one combat control team member, two pilots, three crewmen, seven members of the Afghan National Security Forces, and one Afghan interpreter. And I'm very specific in, in that because I was on that mission overhead watching this all happen. Now, the missions that happened downrange are classified. So after that mission had occurred, I will never forget, you could hear a pin drop in our uh, RPA operations center. But I had to go home that night and I couldn't tell a soul. So mentally, um, that was challenging. While I was um, in MQ1s, I deployed three times with the launch and recovery element. I deployed twice to Africa and once to Afghanistan. The reason why the launch and recovery element exists is because uh, traditionally, and they're trying to change the technology on this, but uh, the MQ-1 flies via satellite and there's a two-second delay, which is enough of a delay to crash a plane when you're trying to make fine little adjustments and maneuvers you know, with landing or taking off. And so the launch and recovery element grabs it out of the sky using that line of sight link that they have downrange and then they can land it. So that's why there's jobs downrange for uh, predator. There were for predators, and the predator has retired, just so you know. But uh, for the MQ-9, um, for the U-28, let's talk about that. All right. The difference between the U-28 and MQ-1 is that what happens downrange stays downrange because there's no more because there's more time to transition. So traditionally, you deploy for four months. You go to LUD to kind of decompress a little bit, and then you're ready to get back into the the real life or the real world back home. Um, I would also say that the deployed environment in the U-28 creates a different camaraderie than being back home because you eat, sleep, work out, and fly with your squadron. The U-28 has four crew members. You get to go know those people pretty well. We called it a tube of trust because you get to know a lot of weird things about people. Um, but there's those four crew members are the aircraft commander, the co-pilot, the combat systems officer, and the tactical systems officer who's uh, enlisted. Um, but I would say by the end of those four months, you're ready to leave those people. <laughs> you've, you've had a lot of time with them. But, uh, you know, being, being away from U-28s, uh, I do miss those people because they're the best kind of people. So that's a little bit of my flying career in a nutshell and kind of the nuances between the two. Yeah, so you kind of mentioned the um, the relationships you build with your crew. Um, and as like an aircraft commander, as an officer, how is that, especially like you get to know those people really well, how does that compare or what's it like having those relationships between officers and then officer also that um, officer and enlisted relationship? Yeah, so, you know, there, there's a... There's a level of understanding and a level of respect um, when you're flying. I would tell my crew, and maybe this is not what every aircraft commander tells their crew, but um, rank doesn't count in the plane. Position does. So we're all a team. Um, each one of the members has something to contribute to the mission. And so, you know, if the TISO has a very, you know, the TISO would drive the mission a lot. If they have something important to say, I tell everybody to shut up and listen to them, you know. Same with the co-pilot, same with the, the CISO. Um, so there was no, in, in my plane at least, there was no rank. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. So um, you touched on it a little bit, uh, both the um, 
both the MQ-1 and U-28 are ISR aircraft, um, downrange, mission support, um, but especially the, the MQ-1 um, and now the MQ-9 for AFSOC. What, what's the difference between what an AFSOC MQ-9 squadron would be doing versus um, a regular Air Combat Command um, attack squadron? Yeah, it's just, I would say the biggest differences are who they support. They're, they're both trained the same. I mean, when I went and trained to fly the MQ-1, I went down to Holloman. Uh, there was ACC people there. When I went to learn how to do the launch and recovery element, I went out to Creech. And I deployed with ACC people. I was, in fact, the only MQ-1 AFSOC person deployed in Afghanistan in an ACC unit. So the, the two overlap, I would say, like, when I'm, when I'm home in the mission control element, uh, there's different mission sets and who we support. Is it, is it more, you t- talked about, like, you know, you get the same training, but is it more competitive to go to the AFSOC side of things compared to, like, conventional Air Force, ACC? Or how, yeah. do, how does that work? There's no delineator. It's just kind of luck of the draw and, and where you end up. So um, out of pilot training, I ended up at Cannon, which is an AFSOC base. So I was automatically, hey, you're in AFSOC now. Uh, other people went to ACC right out of pilot training. So it was just kind of luck of the draw. Really had nothing to do with uh, certain skill sets or um, anything like that. Yeah, so um, kind of going into the PC-12 and the U-28. Um, so I know we were kind of talking a lot about like RPAs and how those play into um, the, the fight. Where does the PC-12 and the U-28 um, have a role in the Air Force? Right. Uh, so the PC-12 is the U-28. So the PC-12 is just kind of the um, bare bones version. Um, and then when you put a bunch of equipment on it and a sensor, a couple sensors, then it becomes a, a U-28. Uh, the PC-12 used to be a non-standard aviation bird. So they would uh, take snake eaters and their gear into the depths of African jungles, um, but it transitioned solely to being the trainer for the U-28. Uh, so the PC-12 doesn't cost as much as the U-28, so there's less risk during training. It carries more gas because it weighs less because you don't have as much equipment on it. It also seats more people, so you can cycle a couple crews through to hack currencies. So I could sit in the back for a few hours waiting to fly, never really have to stop, and we just switch out so I can hack a few landings. Um, and it does not go downrange anymore. Uh, the U-28 Draco is a militarized version, uh, like I mentioned, of the PC-12, and it's outfitted to do those ISR missions. Um, the mission is support is to support humanitarian operations, hostage rescue, search and rescue, and conventional and special ops missions. Uh, we can also do route um, recce and escort TAC-A, which is, stands for Tactical Airborne. Uh, that's basically where you can control the airborne stack. You can relay info to the, the Joint Terminal Air Attack Controller, the JTAC, and back to Air Assets and the JOC. Um, a typical stack, um, if you just imagine a ring around a target and there's a bunch of aircraft flying above there, uh, you've got typically like an AC-130, an F-16, some helos, and an MQ-9 and yourself. And that's kind of the stack. And you have to deconflict people, make sure that we're at different altitudes. You know, the payloads of the, you know, the F-16, well, then they need to do yo-yo ops back and forth to the tanker. And you can kind of take that, uh, you know, that workload off of the JTAC. So that's what a TAC-A is. 
you can relay, we can relay com- uh, communications. We're kind of a big comm node in the sky. We have nine radios split amongst four crew members. Uh, plus the TISO in the back has Merc chat. So he's just like typing away, chatting to people all over the place. We can do vehicle interdiction and direct action with uh, helo intercepts. We support helo assault force, uh, boat assault force, and ground assault force. Um, we have worked with CV-22s, Black Hots, Apache, Chinooks, Little Birds, and Night Stalkers, uh, all from like the 160th SOAR, um, which has been a, real, a privilege to work with. They're one of the best units, in my opinion, to ever work with. Uh, so that's kind of the U-28 mission in a nutshell. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of things in that nutshell. Yeah, yeah, it's a big nutshell. <laughs> it's a lot going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in all those in all those roles, um, which I'm sure there were plenty you got to do through um, Global War on Terror, um, is there a, a certain mission that you can talk about that um, is maybe the most impactful or the most meaningful um, to you, either providing ISR or any of those other support missions? Yeah, so I can't really think of one because every day was an adventure, I'd have to say. Um, I can't give you much details, unfortunately, but I'll give you yeah. I'll give you three that are very memorable. The first one was uh, an O300 mission. So an O300 mission is a presidential mission where you're notified on a Thursday that you're deploying on Sunday. And um, what you're about to go do, you really don't know. All you need to know is you need to pack up everything to support, you know, in our case, two predators to get somewhere to do some things. So that one was extremely rewarding. Um, uh, Another mission, uh, planning the operation and providing overwatch for the vice president's visit in Afghanistan. If you're in my lead 400 class, that's one of our case studies. Um, that was really uh, rewarding also because my husband flew that mission while I was a planner for it. Yeah, so he, cool. put, a, he put a little bit of trust in me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was also a U-28 pilot. Uh, the third one was being on a mission that took out uh, a number two bad dude. That's all I can say. Uh, but having my husband there to witness the mission success was, was really awesome, too. He was the director of operations, just kind of listening down at the jock with what was ever going on. So being able to land from that mission and see him in the jock was uh, pretty awesome. I, I, I think that's a really unique thing that we've gotten to do. Yeah. Yeah, so when you, uh, you mentioned that uh, the, the uh, overwatch of the vice president's visit to uh, Afghanistan, yeah. so where does the, the tie-in to lead 400 in, in that uh, case study? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. So uh, we use that in the... Um, uh, levers of leadership. So you're going to use different levers to accomplish. Um, actually, no, I use that for. Um, oh, yep, it's the or, the systems approach to organizational yep. Yep. leadership. That's what it is. That's what it was. It's so it's using the different elements in your um, your unit as kind of the internal um, factors to kind of make the system whole. So. You have all the different people um, that have to make the mission happen, and all those little pieces have like external elements. Like, I think a uh, haboob rolls in, or yep. you know, the the yep. this is all kind of bad guys on the way between bad the guys. fob and bag room or wherever. Yeah, it is. exactly. And uh, you just have to kind of uh, pivot. You have to adapt using your resources. And I, I, 
I try to match it to every, because I have seniors only, and every senior usually knows what job they're going to have. So I split everybody up so that they know or they can try to utilize the, the position, the job that they're about to go into to accomplish the mission. So I think it's fun. I hope I hope the guys think yeah. it's fun too. <laughs> and for, for any non-USAFA listeners or viewers, uh, Leadership 400 is one of the classes that every cadet takes their senior year as part of the leadership um, program as you go through the academy before commissioning. Yeah, so um, I, we kind of talked obviously just a little bit about Afghanistan and, and just one of those impactful missions that you had. And so when we look at the broader scope of you know the last 25 years um, of the United States being involved or now in the past um, being involved in, in, in the Middle East um, in, in a major sense, um, what role and what capabilities did the U-28 bring that other aircraft just didn't have? All right, that's a good question. Um, so like we, we talked about, it's a multi-role aircraft. So it can do a lot of different missions. I mean, maybe I'm biased, but I think that they can do the most amount of missions out there. Um, it's equipped with high-tech sensors and communication systems. U-28 can gather and relay critical information efficiently. Uh, crews are extremely proficient in multitasking. You know, we talked about all the radios, right? So I could be talking to the jock, the helos, the JTAC, and F-16s all at the same time and have essay on everything that's going on. Um, its size and design allows operations in less accessible and rugged environments. It can land on dirt. Can do short and um, it can do short land and takeoffs. Um, it's not stole exactly, but it it's it it can land in pretty tight spots. Um, the U twenty can quickly respond to emerging situations, making it valuable for time sensitive missions. It complements other assets in joint or coalition operations, enhancing overall mission effectiveness. JTACs always want a U a U twenty eight overhead, and um, I think the U twenty eight community does a really great job at fostering relationships and not burning them because you know we're all one team, one fight, and so when we're for example, deployed to Afghanistan, we were literally in the same building as the Rangers. And so we could have that face-to-face before and after missions, which was really important because now you have a face to the name who's on the ground and you're overwatch those friendlies. So um, I think that that was a huge um, relationship building thing that the U-28s did. Yeah, and, and kind of talking, you know, the U-28's role in the Air Force. Um, hopefully we, we another war doesn't happen, but, you know, we always are training for the future fight, and, and hopefully nothing kicks off in the Middle East. Um, but as, as the United States kind of prepares uh, possibly for that future fight, what role do you think the U-28 and AFSOC plays in that fight? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, depends on how far into the future we're talking about. Um, There's a, you know, not a lot of people know this, but the U-28 is being phased out and it's being replaced by the Sky Warden. So the phase-out time is still unknown, um, but I see there being a blended requirement between the Sky Warden and the U-28 until 2029. Um, Before that, uh, U-28s will remain in irregular warfare and counterterrorism fight. Um, But as far as a peer conflict, there are issues with contested environments but industry and the DOD are, are working towards a solution. So it's kind of unknown. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, yeah, 
So the the Sky Warden, um, that kind of hit the news a couple of years ago that that yeah. was going to be a new plane, converted air tractor uh, with a bunch of sensors and a, another seat. Um, what have you What have you heard about it? Um, what are you excited about with it? Things um, you know that might change from the U twenty eight to that aircraft. Um, yeah, what what have you heard? <laughs> yeah, okay, so good questions. Um, yeah, I'm a little far removed from the the process right now, but I've done my best to like call back to buddies still kind of in in that environment and find out what's going on. But um, as far as what they tell me that uh, the schoolhouse and the first operational squadron is going to stand up at the Royal Rogers Air National Guard Base in Oklahoma. So the 310 Special Operations Squadron at Cannon Air Force Base will make that transition most likely, and they'll, they'll move there and, and stand it up. So by the fall of 2025, they'll start teaching students. So instructors will be full up, ready to go. And then by 2027, they'll have their first deployment and then be fully operational by 2029. So it's not impossible that you couldn't fly the U-28 still. I highly recommend uh, <laughs> before the Sky Warden gets online. Uh, they expect to have about 200 pilots. Uh, it's a little bit of a change of mission set. So it's going to be armed overwatch, so that adds the strike capability. Um, it can go to austere locations with little logistical support and a small footprint, which is not new. U-28 can do that. Uh, it'll be close air support, precision strike, armed ISR for regular warfare and counterterrorism. So similar mission, right? And uh, it can carry up to eight common launch tubes, same as an A-10 or a gunship. Uh, so they can carry uh, weapons like the AGM-176 Griffin uh, or small, small glide munitions, which equals low collateral damage, which is what um, commanders are looking for. So um, it'll be mainly used in Africa, according to the previous AFSOC Commander General Slife. Um, and pilots will need to learn wingman and flight tactics, which is new, or, or kind of back to basics, because you know you learn that in T6s or, or T38s in pilot training. Um, but it can bring a gunship level effects into hard to reach areas. So it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty cool neat. Stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things you know, as we continue to talk about the future. Uh, one of your interests, according to your bio, was, you know, the Arctic and how the Arctic plays into Homeland Security and where our capabilities and our enemy capabilities are at in the Arctic and how the Arctic is just going to play out in the future. Mm-hmm. So where do you think the United States goes in terms of Homeland Defense um, in regards to the Arctic? Yeah, good question. So I'd say the Arctic is something that, uh, you know, we're not really thinking about. You know, there's other areas of the world that are kind of more hot right now. Um, but let's talk about the timeline. So scientists are saying that the Arctic will have ice-free summers by the 2030s, okay? And ice-free summers means that the, the routes in those areas, like the, um, transnat- the transpolar sea route, the um, Northwest Passage, and the Northern Sea Route will all be more accessible. Um, Russia is revitalizing Soviet-era bases and building new ones along their northern coast, and there's going to be frequency and shipping lanes, um, and particular, particularly near the um, Greenland, Iceland, UK, Norway gap. All right. Also, China. So China considers themselves a near-Arctic state, and they're an observer of the Arctic Council. China is conducting military operations under the guise of research. They want to create a polar silk road. 
Um, and that's why it's important to prepare now. So there's there's many things that uh, the U.S. can be doing now, and I think they're starting to re- we're starting to realize that it's becoming important. So I'd say the Arctic is already in play. Um, we see out of area deployers also Russian subs, Russian aircraft flying along our air defense identification zone and the GIUKN gap, testing uh, the U.S. and NATO capabilities. So we have Arctic strategies for each service now, which is which is huge. The National Strategy for the Arctic Region came out in 2022. There's a newly appointed Arctic ambassador. And then most recently, because of years of studying the continental shelf, the U.S. is about to claim about a million square kilometers more um, in the Arctic Ocean and the Bering Sea. So um, that'll be a lot more territory to monitor, um, and domain awareness is going to be key. So so what's what's the basis of that claim, or like how how is that even going to work, or why are we claiming that? Yeah, so um, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, we're able to map out the continental shelf. So there's rules, you know, about your exclusive economic zones and being able to have jurisdiction uh, 200 nautical miles past that. Uh, There's a lot of um, consternation about a ratification of the UN, um, it's called um, UNCLOS, and it's it's basically being able to have um, control or like um, resourcing in areas that you own, but we haven't ratified it. So um, that's something that Senator Murkowski is working on in Alaska. Um, to see now with this this um, claim of territory, it's kind of a push to, to have that happen. So um, it's gonna it's probably going to um, make our response really complicated because you have to think about what's up there, who's up there, is the Coast Guard up there? Are they gonna have the ability to do search and rescue? Because now we're gonna have that that area to be responsible for. How are we gonna get assets up there that are maritime? Uh, and with all that sea ice melt and those shipping lanes increasing, it comes right near that area. And so we're going to see more traffic, which also puts a crunch on the Coast Guard as well. So, Yeah, so just to clarify, um, so it's, it's a pre-existing rules that govern, you know, economic zone and, and, and territorial waters. And now it's just being discovered that there's certain things that fall under that that we didn't know previously. And so that's why it's, it's not so much a claim, but we're, there's more land that we originally, th- or more area that we originally thought fell than what we thought originally fell under those rules. Uh, I wouldn't say it's more about the rules, it's more about the area of, of the territory because what we're trying to do is, if we make claims to that, that means that we also have the rights to resources as well. So fisheries, any tor- type of like oil, hydrocarbons, stuff like that. All right. Awesome. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and your, your research on the Arctic um, and Arctic policy is part of the Institute for Future Conflict, right? Correct. Yep. Mm-hmm. So um, for those that don't know, uh, the Institute for Future Conflict is located at USAFA and is um, basically like a, a think tank, I guess, for, for research like yours and and um, all sorts of other stuff. Um, what what do they? That's that's basically what I know. But yeah. what what do they do more than that um, for USAFA and for the Air Force? And uh, what else do you do as part of it? 
Sure, that's a good question. All right, so Institute for Future Conflict located on the fifth floor of the library. Um, it's uh, We're building our bench um, this last couple of years. You know, it's still kind of in its nascent stages, uh, but we have, we, we are trying to build our, our bench with subject matter experts. So we have people who know about data science, uh, the pacing threat of China, um, cybersecurity, there's artificial intelligence, all sorts of um, uh, breadth of knowledge that we have. And what we're trying to do is we're, we're, we're trying to educate cadets and others um, in, within the DOD about um, future conflict. And those subject matter experts are supposed to, are helping us to drive that conversation. So we try to bring in more from outside of USAFA and have guest speakers up to, you know, the, the, the TS level as well. Um, we do outreach uh, as far as cr- trying to get the, the word out and going to conferences. We put on conferences, we present research, um, and we do intelligence briefings every Thursday. Uh, let's see, what else? We um, And we have essay contests. I don't know if you heard about the essay contest. Um, and eventually we're going to be moving over to the Cyber Center um, and we're going to have um, a lot more space over there and uh, skiff ability. So, um, cool. yeah, and I've been fortunate enough to be able to kind of pick the topic of my choosing. And I chose the Arctic because I was a speechwriter at NORAD and NORTHCOM. And the commander's number one priority there was domain awareness. And as so I said, all right, I'm going to take that on. I'm going to see if I can uh, help help drive um, solutions to that problem. Cool. Yeah, so I guess we'll uh, we'll kind of go into your education and background. So Air Force pilot. Yep. Um, did you always know you wanted to fly, or where did that desire to fly come from? So, I think it had always, it had always been there. So growing up, um, I would I would go down to Tucumcari, New Mexico, uh, where my grandpa and grandma lived, and he pretty much owned the airport there. So he had a bunch of aerogliders, and I got to go up at a very young age. I can't even remember how young I was. Uh, so I had the opportunity to, to fly at a very young age, and it was just kind of a part of me. It wasn't exactly like I had dreamed of flying, only because I had been flying. Um, I just dabbled with it, and um, I thought this was just kind of like my path. So the grandpa that I was talking about, he flew P-51s and P-38s. He gave Robin Old a check ride at one oh. point. Um, my grandpa on my dad's side was a B-25 pilot. He flew um, in India over the Burma Bridge. He was a Burma Bridge buster. And my dad flew various aircraft, but his main main gig was the F-16. So I'm a third-generation Air Force pilot. And uh, so it just kind of seemed like it was it was just there, and that was kind of what I was meant to do. And, you know, I, I, I tried to fight it a little bit because, you know, sometimes you just want to rebel and you don't want to be like your parents. <laughs> it took me a while to kind of figure it out. And uh, I finally uh, came to my senses and landed back on, on flying. So I said, you know what, I'll try, I'll try pilot training, see how it goes. And I made it through and I'm, I'm still here. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah. 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 So ROTC pilot training and then RPAs, did you, did you want to do that? Or was that um, what you happened to get? The Air Force gave it to you and you ran with it. Yeah, you know how I said, let's hope that I made it through pilot training? Like, I squeaked by. So I was kind of at the bottom of my class. And, you know, when you're at the bottom of your class, you don't you don't really get to choose. And so at the time, um, nobody wanted to go fly RPAs. 
So I kind of just got the one of the last things that was left. So I, I did get, I did not choose to fly MQ1s, but I don't regret it. You know, it was a really great uh, growth opportunity. I got to do some incredible missions and it was a great transfer over to the U-28 mission. And, uh, you know, that was, that was the, um, when you start in the Air Force, usually you're very young and you're impressionable. Um, and I was very stubborn when I got into my first squadron because I didn't think that I was supposed to be flying MQ-1s. And that really taught me how to grow where you're planted. It, it forced me to um, grow up, I'd say. But uh, yeah, no regrets. It was um, a great opportunity, great experience. Yeah, so when we talk, um, so ROTC grad, yep. um, when we talk about how the commissioning service or commissioning um, commissioning options uh, compared to each other and how they are today compared to how they were in the past, um, when you look at you know the commissioning education training that you went through versus how it's being handled today, what do you think the military can do to ensure that new officers are prepared for the future fight? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I I wouldn't say I have, I have a good comparison because it was, you know, roughly 15 years ago when I commissioned. But through those 15 years, I learned a lot and how I could have been better prepared to go into the Air Force. And so that's something that I remember and I always try to bring into my class in LEAD 400. Um, but what I'd say is that I think we need to focus on mental toughness and give new officers better tools on how to thrive, handle stress, perform at a peak level, and take care of each other. I mean, that's kind of how I've summed up the last 15 years. So um, I think we can do that by teaching mindfulness practices, you know, such as meditation and breathing exercises, have strong physical conditioning, incorporating training from sports and performance psychology to enhance focus and performance under pressure, encourage a cultural a culture of mutual support, uh, provide access to counseling services uh, to discuss and manage personal and professional stressors, um, and administer real, realistic training scenarios. So for me, this was learned when I was a major. That took a while for me to learn this. Um, and it was because of an embedded, we had an embedded psychologist named Doc J um, in the 34th SOS. Uh, that was the squadron I was in, in during U-28s at Pearlbert Field, Florida. Um, she helped build resilience in our squadron by giving us tools to get back into the fight. So maybe after a mentally, mentally tough or bad mission, we were able to come back quicker, right? I wish we had this while I was in Predators, you know. Um, I also learned from her that self-care wasn't selfish. Knowing my limits and trying to build those up, learning that being uncomfortable spurs growth. U-28s required this, and it was honestly the best community I've ever been in. Uh, we, were, we were definitely like family. We cared about the mission and being the best at our craft, but to get to that point, we had to practice uh, stateside, to prepare for going downrange. So it was just a way of life and a, men a mentality. And uh, that's something that I wish that uh, new officers could experience and learn more quickly. I should end though with, when you take care of your people, the mission takes care of itself and everyone wins and the enemy doesn't get a vote. Good stuff. Yeah, so um, you just mentioned it quickly, but um, in MQ-1 squadrons and, and even MQ-9 squadrons, there's a little bit of a, a reputation of, um, you know, it being difficult for people's mental health. Like you talked about earlier, that transition in 15 minutes from fighting a war to being at home or watching your kid play soccer. Yeah. Um, 
have you kept in touch with how that's changed and and um where the community's gone to to help people deal with that yeah there has been some really um good steps towards i would just say like health so um being on a night a 12-hour night shift um i think you know i don't have the the data with me now but studies have shown that that it'll decrease your lifespan um Mm -hmm. So there was a squadron commander. He stood up the squadron at um, the active duty squadron at Hurlburt Field. He implemented sleep pods. So they had sleep pods outside of their um, ground control station or, or their like, they called it like the Rock Mahal, you know, where they have a building. So instead of like going to your car and trying to sleep in between a takeoff and a landing because you're on the night shift, they actually encouraged people to go take naps. And that way there was accountability. You knew exactly where people were and they could rest up ready to fly the next mission because, you know, you would do the same shift for about six weeks. So your body has finally adjusted and then you, you change to another shift. I'm sure nurses and doctors can kind of relate. Um, they started bringing in nutritionists to help, um, with, you know, diet and, uh, exercise encouraging that to bring putting gyms in those buildings so that during maybe during a break you can get a workout in but i i still don't know about the embedded psychologist i i have yet to to follow up about that but i think that was huge um in u28s and so i hope that the um, rpa community has adopted that so yeah (laughs) so i guess um kind of looking forward to the future uh what does the future hold for you Oh, good question. Uh, all right. So coming up, all the stuff that we talked about in the Arctic, hopefully there'll be an article coming out in the Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs about uh, logistics in the Arctic supporting the Indo-Pacific. So cool. when that comes out, check it out. Uh, but my fellowship is ending in June, and I will, um, I've been told that I'm going to get to be the deputy director of the Homeland Defense Institute at NORTHCOM. So my office will still be uh, here at the Air Force Academy because there's uh, there's two parts to the Homeland Defense Institute. There's NORTHCOM and then there's USAFA. So I will be the USAFA counterpart. And so I'll still be around and just trying to get cadets um, and faculty um, more into inter- interdisciplinary study and helping those Homeland Defense problems and doing, and doing research um, in the process. So that's what's next for me coming up in June. So I won't be saying goodbye quite yet. <laughs> awesome. Any follow-up question before I go to the last one? I don't think I have any. All righty. So it's, uh, it's a tradition on the podcast uh, to ask the final question. Um, you know, everybody has their own take. So the question for you, ma'am, is what's the best aircraft in the Air Force's inventory today and why? Well, it's the U-28 Draco. Booyah. Of course. Uh, Absolutely. It's because um, we're the most humble and uh, best-looking air crew. That's why. <laughs> Solid reasoning. <laughs> Solid reasoning. It, do you, do you yeah. got a number two or, like, some more reasoning behind the <laughs> U-28? I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm, need, I'm not necessarily more, John? I, I don't know if I'm necessarily compelled by that <laughs> argument. I mean, I've been sold the F-22 multiple times. Yeah, that's supposed to be a good enough answer, I think. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Well, uh, well, thank you, man, for coming on the podcast. We truly do appreciate you taking your time out of your schedule. Um, And yeah, so as a reminder, all these episodes are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts with clips on YouTube uh, Shorts and Instagram Reels. With that, we will catch you all in the next one.